Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Let me pray for us, and then we'll launch into the design of this course and why we're teaching it and kind of answer some questions in advance. Let's go ahead and just thank God that we're healthy enough and it's safe enough that we can come uh, study a little bit together and learn something. God, I do thank you for this today. I thank you for health. I know there are some that want to be here tonight that just don't feel well. Some who have had a a hard day at work, it's just been rough, and the best thing they can do is just stay home and uh, collect their thoughts and talk with you and and rest. Uh, But for those of us that are able to gather here with our kids or uh, we've just come in, it's exciting to see the number of cars that come out here Uh, each and every week, to learn, to grow as a family, to be reminded of the most important things when our minds are being dragged here and there all the time. So I pray that our time tonight will be uh, beneficial, most of all it will be encouraging, uh, so that when we open this book with all of the power it contains, uh, we can have an understanding of why you gave us what you gave us. And so I just pray for attention and for energy for all of us, that this day and its busyness may end well, and that we can go home and rest well. And I pray this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we had a conversation this last fall that if we were going to do corrective lenses, and we were going to use Wednesday nights to coincide with the sermon series, that uh, the challenge would be that was some pretty intense uh, topics. Uh, and it was beautiful, because many of you just kept coming every week. You just made it a priority. And and whenever we teach these classes, I know that, you know, we'll start tonight with somewhere between 80 to 100 people said they wanted to come. And, and the natural migration of life happening is that by the time we end this, we'll be at 50 or 60, and that's okay. Because life happens, and most of the stuff that keeps people from coming, they wouldn't have wished it on themselves for anything. So we're always going to be surrounded by grace. I'm going to encourage you, however, to uh, make a big decision tonight. Uh, and that is, if this, if what we're going to cover and the way I'm going to teach it If it doesn't uh, scratch your itch, don't just stay home. Pick another class. There are better teachers. There's better topics. If this isn't what you thought it was going to be, I'll cry on my own. I won't let you see it. But go to the study. Because while I'm going to be teaching or preaching on Mark, the Gospel of Mark, here uh, during the Sunday mornings, you have to know that there are 16 intense chapters. And as Michael told us Sunday morning, Mark is go, 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 go. He's, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And Mark is obviously a godly man. There's no sermons in the book of Mark. If you've read it, you notice that. He doesn't waste his time with sermons. Jesus did this, 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 and died. So he's telling us something. So if in this class, that's, this isn't what you want, then I'm going to encourage you to go to the class on the Gospel of Mark where we're going to be able to study longer, and more in-depth, where on 28 minutes, on a Sunday morning, I can only get your face in front of two or three scenes, and then we move on. That makes sense? So you get to make some choices. Tonight, you can test drive this and see if it's what you want. If you don't enjoy history and background, I'm going to kill you in here, okay? I'm going to be real honest with you. For those of you that just want the facts, uh, I don't want to talk about those. What I want to do is give you some background to overlay over the Bible where you can understand, ah, this book was written under this moment, and it just makes sense. I know if I go home and, and Heather calls me honey, it's been a good day. If she calls me Mark, Braden's in trouble. If she says, hey you, I'm going somewhere else, right? So there's a context to the way we speak in the Bible. So tonight, in fact, I've given you two lessons in your folder. I did it. Lindsay does all the work. Lindsay put together these nice folders for you so you can take notes and you can write it down. I've given you more information than you're probably used to getting from me in an outline because I want you to have this material so when you go home, you don't need me anymore. You can pull this up and say, I'm about to read the book of Galatians. What did we learn about what's in Galatians? What are the key breakdowns? What are the key moments in it? What do we need to know? So this can be a very useful thing for you if you, if you choose to use it. So you have some options for you. Tonight we're going to, I gave you the first two lessons because I don't know how long it'll take me to go through the introduction to the Bible. And then if we can jump into lesson two, we'll jump into lesson two. Uh, and we'll just keep moving because there will be some sections that will be a little aggressive. We'll try to cover a whole bunch and time won't a lot for that. So there may be some weeks that we take, it'll say week three, but it may take us two weeks to cover week three. 
And because my nature is more of a teacher than it is an orator, if something jumps to your imagination, now I can't see you with the rotisserie lights. I'll be real honest with you. So if you have a question, yep, Diane knows how, just, or just say, hey, Mark, and I will pause, believe it or not, and uh, I'll answer your question or I'll make up an answer or we'll delay and I'll write it down, okay? So that's kind of the way we're going to go. I want this to be more of a classroom engagement. Uh, I'll try not, not to ask you silly sermon questions you don't answer anyway. I'll try to engage you uh, with what's going on. Bible, Michael said it so well. He had no idea he was introducing our lesson. The Bible's a confusing book. Okay? And here's what we want to start with from the very, very beginning. And, and this is controversial, and I don't say it to be provocative, but I know my statement is. The Bible is not a piece of literature. The first thing we need to disengage our minds from is that this is a great epic story written to intrigue us from beginning to end. This is bigger than that, more powerful than that. This is the history of a people, all people from creator to the conclusion of creation. And there are moments in it that are dry. There are moments in it that are exciting. There are moments that are scandalous. And then there are moments that are predictable. But if you looked at your story, wouldn't you say the same thing about your narrative? Scandal, predictability, highs, lows, average, mundane, it's life. So the book's very, very fascinating. I'm, I'm more than nervous. I'm just going to have to confess up front because God will expose it if I don't. I've taught this through twice, both to life groups. In small circles in a living room with coffee and, and cake, always good food, but sitting around and engaged. So when I brought this concept up, Scott and I debated, we flipped a coin. And to teach it to a large group, you guys are my guinea pigs. This may not work exceptionally well. I will adjust but I'm really used to having six or eight people sitting around and someone to stop and go, okay, what about this? And I read this and so forth. So uh, we're going to kind of work our, our way through this all along. So I've given you all the reasons that if this fails, it's not my fault, right? That's what I just did? Okay, that's okay. Since I can't grade you, I can't blame you. So here we go. Uh, just want to walk through some of this. I saw Mr. Metzger over there already cheating. He's filled in some of the blanks from his Bible college days. And uh, we'll see if he got them right. Let me tell you what you have in your hands when you open your Bible. And the beauty of it today is, uh, and some of you don't think this is beautiful because of the comments you say to me in the hallways, but I, I smile because we just disagree. I love the fact that I am never without my Bible. When I started in ministry, I had my big leather-bound Bible. I still have it. My parents gave it to me when I went to Bible college when I was 18. I've had to have it recovered twice. It's got my notes from college in it. It's a very special thing. I have not opened that book since I moved here. It sits in my office as a keepsake, but I don't use it anymore. I still will, I guess that's not really true. I, I open it every now and then because I remember there was a sermon in chapel on this section and I, I wrote some things and I want to go find out what I wrote. Uh, but now, I'm never without a Bible. I don't have to carry that little tiny preacher Bible with the tiny little print so I'm in a hospital, I can read Psalm 23 or bless a family. I love the fact I pull my phone up. I have 19 translations. Some of them I don't even speak. And I can, I can show you the text. There's value to that. There's real value for some of you to have a physical book in your lap that you hold. I know my students will say this today, I just want a book. I want to hold a book in my hands. Then get yourself a physical Bible. But my goodness, if you have a phone that's been made in the last 20 years, you can have all the scriptures at your disposal. Now, some of us have been raised in an age where I said, in Romans chapter 3, some of your minds would go, okay, that's on the left side of my Bible toward the top. Shake your head if, you, if, if you've been there, right? You know, you know the text. It's on this page, on the left side, somewhere around there. Now, we lose that with the electronic Bibles. But now they're even making your iPads and your, uh, your computers for your, uh, your programs for your computers. You can keep notes right in there, and they're easily to be recalled. So I want you to become very comfortable with the abilities we have in front of us and what we do with that. Okay, the Bible is a collection of, class, how many books? 66 books. We have church camp kids who know the answer to that one. Because you remember, if you got that right, you got to go to lunch before everybody else. So it, it's 66 different books. Now we could play with the concept of, is, are they books? Collections? Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that as we go. Now, how many different authors have written those 66 books? And the answer is not 66. 40. 
The best guesstimates are that there are 40 different authors who contributed. Now, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. There are some books that we don't know who wrote them, but we know it wasn't Paul or Peter or John based on the style of writing. So, 66 books written by 40 different authors that covers 1,500 years of world history. Now, if you were here for the Corrective Lens series, when we talked about the scriptures, uh, Chad and Michael did a great job of bringing up some of the scrutiny that our text is under. Like, for instance, let's, let's do a little test. The first five books of, of the Old Testament are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? Who wrote those? Yes, okay, that's a good point. Moses edited them. But because we know Moses couldn't have written all of it, Why? He dies in it. So unless he was really prophetic, which he's not given credit for biblically, he died at the tail end of the passage going into Joshua. So he edited it. Most of it comes from oral history. Now, for the skeptics, they'll say, then how do we know it's acting? Now, you have to understand, when you didn't have television, XM radio, your own private little worlds to live in, storytelling was how all history was passed down. And they would take great pains to make sure it was accurately told and retold and told and retold. We're a little more frivolous with our facts. You ever play the game where you tell someone a story and have them repeat it by the fourth time? It's nowhere near accuracy. But the oral stories that they told, this was passed on from the fathers down. And it was told, and Moses collected those stories because look how much of it happened before Moses even existed. But scholars say that Moses led the people of Israel, and with 40 years in the wilderness, chances are they had a good time to sit around and collect these stories. Okay? So 1,500 years of World Series, yet the Bible is one book with a single story to tell. I've heard this said, and I don't want to be the guy that makes fun of people who aren't in the room, but I've heard it say, or people say out loud, that the Bible is our story. I don't agree. The Bible is God's story. It's about God from beginning to end. Now, we're included, but we're an appendix. We're not the hero. And so because of that, it's one story covering 15 years of history. There are two sections called the Old Testament, which has how many books? 39. And the New Testament, if you can do your math, what's that leave you? Pardon? 27. The Old Testament was written between, and now I'm not going to, this is not a test to get you into heaven or hell, right? If you miss this one, God goes, oh, you're gone. It's not, it's not that. But, to the best of research, the Old Testament was written between 1400 B.C. and 27 B.C. But most of us know now that the terms A.D. and B.C. don't exist in scholarship anymore. We'll talk about that in a little bit. It's not a bad thing. It's like the people who cry out, we've got to put Christ back in Christmas because of Xmas. It's really a misunderstanding of language used. Okay? So the New Testament, so between 1400 B.C. and 2700 B.C. is the Old Testament. And the New Testament was written in about 70 years between 40 A.D. and 100 A.D. Now, that tells us that there's a period of almost 60 years. And, and we're going to talk about this too. When you figure out when Jesus died, now, scholarship is crystal clear in this. We know he did not die in zero year when they started the calendar. Correct? You guys are aware of that, right? So when we look at this, that means that Jesus probably died instead of, if he lived 33 years, most of us would assume in 33 AD he passed. There's been many series about that, books written on that, but the calendar system got jacked up in the way they counted the, the lunar trips and all the way that God designed in the book of Genesis how we mark time. We talked about that in creative, or Corrective Lenses. But for a period of more than likely 21 years from the time that Jesus left us, there was nothing written about him that we have record of. The first biblical New Testament account more than likely happened about 40 AD, which I find fascinating, and I'll show you why in just a little bit down the line. So the Old Testament deals with the events before the birth of Jesus, and the New Testament tells us about Jesus' birth, death, resurrection, and so on. Why did I start with the New Testament, not the Old Testament? Because I think it's really important for us 
to grasp what the New Testament teaches us, and then it's accentuated in the Old Testament, and we have a better understanding of why all the kings? Why did the nation of Israel become Israel and Judah? Why was all of this divided? What difference did it make, and why should I care? I think, you know, if we're adventuresome, probably next spring we'll teach a class what's in the Old Testament. Okay, because what we're going to do in the fall is go through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we'll do on... Wednesday night, a deeper look into a, a messed up church. So some of the topics that come out on Sunday will develop more Wednesday night. So if you keep playing along, there'll be a reason to come Sundays and Wednesdays. They'll just keep connecting with each other and we just grow deeper. Okay, so centuries later, scholars divided the books into chapters and verses. And over 2,600 times, the writers of the Bible claimed to speak or write God's words, not their own. Which is really fascinating to me. So, I know you folks can read, but I want to walk through these talking points. What is amazing about the Bible? The first book of the Bible was written in Hebrew some 3,400 years ago, and the last book was written in Greek about 1,900 years ago. Yet the Bible we read in English today is essentially the same word for word as written in those old, sometimes lost languages. Now, you've probably seen, if you're on the internet at all, someone's handed you one of those, pass it on to your friends with a little angel flitting at the bottom, right? If you love me, you'll send this on to 19 people. And it's been about the odds of what I just told you occurring. Now, someone once explained if you put 800 monkeys in a room and gave them typewriters, the odds of them writing the great American novel are lesser than this happening on its own. To be written over this period of time and for us to have parchments and, and the writings and be able to translate those in and to know what was written 3,400 years ago and to be able to have it available to us. The odds of that happening are incredible. So it's a pretty powerful book. And uncertainties about the Greek words take up no more than a half a page in a Greek New Testament. You, you'll hear skeptics. I, I listen to quite a few podcasts. It's kind of my continuing education path. And I listen to this guy who does apologetics, what Chad uh, Ragsdale does. But he debates uh, cynics of the scriptures, and he challenges them. What's amazing to me in the midst of all of this is when they try to challenge the veracity of the records we have of the scriptures, it doesn't hold water at all. We can show the documentation. We can show the translations, even agreed by those that aren't believers. So there's no Da Vinci Code myth out there. There's no great scandal that all of us at the end are going to go, oh, you're kidding, I was stupid. It's not going to be that way. Now, we have evidence to hold on to. Our translated English Bibles give a reliable and trustworthy account of what was originally written in the Hebrew and Greek thousands of years ago, even the Aramaic. Now, I'll pause here because there's an anticipated question. It came in last fall, and I've saved it for now. We addressed it kind of. What is the best translation of the original text? Okay, you're all thinking, you know, I spent $65 on a study Bible. It was NIV, and now preacher doesn't use it. He puts the message up there, and people come to me after church going, you use a different translation than my Bible. Like, I've got a secret passcode into God, right? And I'm holding it from all of you. Well, there's a translation, and then there's a paraphrase. Paraphrase is a restatement. Okay, the message, the living Bible. Those of us that grew up in the 70s, we all got living Bibles as junior high kids in church, and it had this green binder on it and this really couple of weird hippies on the front cover. Okay? And they gave that to us. Why would you take a paraphrase? I think the message is one of the most beautifully written concepts about Scripture, but it's not a translation. What's the difference? Translation is a word for word, and a paraphrase is an idea for an idea. Now, when I went to college, they told us the New American Standard Bible was the most accurate translation to the original language. But now you can get the RSV, Revised Standard Version, the English Standard Version, the ESV, the NIV, the NAS. We're living in a good age. If you have any one of those four, you can rest assured you have the text in front of you. Now let me pop the big bubble. Of the most common translations used by people, the one that has the most questions about its accuracy is King James. Because the translation was a political translation by a guy named... King James. And there are certain translations he would not allow, and he questioned because he wanted to stick it to the uh, Catholic Church. So, yeah, is it fair to say you can get a good translation today? 
you absolutely can. Now, the, the Bible college guys will tell you the best translation to get is the original language. But I think we're safe and we're very spoiled to have what we have. Okay, so the language of the Bible when it was written, the first books of the Bible written about 1400 B.C. and most of the Old Testament completed around 400 B.C. were written in Hebrew. In fact, we often use the word Jews, like they'll say the Judaic Christian ethic. Probably the best translation in reality is we're more of a Hebraic Christian ethic rather than a Jewish ethic. Jewish would be the Orthodox that don't believe in Jesus. The Hebrews would have been the nation to which God called them out. So that's written in Hebrew. And then there's a section that takes place, which we'll talk about historically. And uh, I'm going to assume you know this, but I may give you more detail than we need to. There was a moment where God disciplined his kids and he sent them to their rooms. He said to, to the nation of Judah and Israel, go to your room. Their room was in Babylon. And for 70 years, they were taken into captivity and punished. The sections of Ezra and Daniel and parts of Nehemiah, we have, we have the transcripts of those, and those are in Aramaic. They're not in Hebrew. That's your second piece. They're written in Aramaic, a related language spoken by most Near Eastern uh, people from 600 B.C. and forward, which is fascinating about that because when you read, and I'm reading through this right now, when you read through uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, you'll find that what they did when they took the Jews captive was they went and got the best and brightest. The, The Nazis did this too. They went and got the doctors and the lawyers and the educators and they grabbed all of them and they inculcated them into culture. They made them eat their food. Remember in the story of Daniel that Daniel didn't want to eat their diet and they said, you have to eat the diet, the king will kill you. And he said, give me, was it a week or a month to eat the diet that God gives me and see if I'm not as healthy as your people. And Daniel was and the king blessed him. So they would bring them in and they would strip them of their natural culture, and they would train them to be more like them. That's why even the scriptures were written in Aramaic. So all of the history starts to make sense when we look at the completed book we have. Okay, so, and the the people in Jesus' day spoke Aramaic. So it's a misconception, and I'll just go ahead and give you the next line. A hundred years before Christ, the Old Testament was translated into Koine Greek, K-O-I-N-E. It's a common form of Greek. It's very specific language. This is why you can study the Greek. That's why we preachers bore you to death on a Sunday morning when I come out and say, the Greek word means X. Because unlike English, where you can have, and, I, and because I, I taught classes, uh, communication courses, if you look at English, it's hard to teach people English because we don't even know. We have four forms of the word two. We have two words said differently. They mean two different things, but they're spelled exactly alike. What is the difference between Polish and Polish? A capital P. That's ridiculous. There's no, we're, we're that lazy. Ah, just leave it. We'll make it up as we go. This is what we've done. So if the Bible were written in English and it were written in the south compared to the northwest corner of our country, our English translations would mean nothing across platforms. What I'm telling you about the Koine Greek is it is such a specific language that Praise God he had it written in that purpose because we don't have to wonder what he meant. The words can be discerned, and it was a very common uh, language that was spoke. But Americans assumed Jesus spoke Greek. Koine wasn't a spoken language. It was a written language only. It would be like those little smiley amoles or whatever they call those things on our phones, you know, when you... You know, you just told someone they're an idiot and you put a little smiley face. It's kind of like the southern equivalent of bless their heart. You know, you say, I hate your gut, smiley face, and you got away with murder, right? Well, the, the language wasn't spoken. So Jesus probably spoke. Hold on. He didn't speak English. He probably spoke Aramaic. In fact, several times he's quoted, like when he walked in the house of that little girl and he said to her, Talitha kum, that's Aramaic. He didn't go in and say, Stand up, little girl. No, he spoke the language of the people. So that's why we have a Hebrew translation, an Aramaic translation, and a Greek translation. Now, some of you, if if there's anyone in the room that was raised Greek Orthodox, uh, your Bibles probably were completely Koine Greek with some Aramaic sections into it that you had to learn. It's been fun to talk to people raised in that environment. Okay, 
What's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? The Old Testament tells the story of God's special relationship with one human family. One human family, the family of Abraham. Okay? One guy, one Hebrew man. And through that one man's people, God revealed himself to all mankind. And this people, God set in motion a plan to save all who believed in him. Secondly, why is it called the Old Testament? And please don't tell me it's old. The Old Testament has probably been something that has cost us understanding. A better translation of that would be the Old Covenant, the Old Contract, the Old Agreement. Okay? We're going to talk a little bit in the next couple of weeks because Mark points them out of John the Baptist. And there's interesting conversation about that, but everybody says John the Baptist is a New Testament prophet. No, he's the last Old Testament prophet because he's the last one to proclaim the Messiah's coming, and then he did. So if you think of it as a contract, an agreement, uh, you have a good concept of it. Testament sounds like a will, right? I mean, I don't know when we use the word testament outside of church, and most of the time it's used the last will and testament of Mark Christian his last statement. So, uh, you know, and plus, once again, you know when you open the original text that you're not going to see chapter 19, verse 1 through 19. Those were put in there as place markers for us to be able to find things more accurately. So when you open uh, the original and you look at the original manuscripts, they're just written in block. And so they were studied. And we'll talk about the people who did this for us and began to section it off and give us these bite-sized pieces. And to prove to you that it's man-made, there's some really imperfections. Most Greek scholars will say, I'm trying to remember the passage, there's one in Romans, and I think it's in Ephesians, where there's a chapter that starts in the middle of a thought. So when they indexed it, they didn't take into consideration what he was doing. They actually stopped the thought and acted like it was a new one. That's when you get that passage that says, you know, you ladies love this one in Ephesians chapter 5, women submit to your husbands. Because it's sectioned off. But previous thought to that is the context of that. That to love one another, to submit to one another, to do all things in the guidance of the Spirit. And then because of that, we can live together in unity. But the way we've divided it, most of your Bibles will have a little header that's put in by English scholars saying, here's a new thought. But it's really, it's an awkward break. So don't trust that every chapter and every verse is God-ordained because it's not. It's just men trying to make this more uh, palatable and easy to understand. Okay, so we no longer call things A.D. or B.C. They're called B.C.E. All right, what does that stand for? Before Common Era. Most of us think that A.D. stood for after death. At least I grew up thinking that. It doesn't. It's a Latin term. So we just made the initials something they weren't. But they began to mark before the Common Era. Now, let's be, I want to be square with you. That is an absolute shot at what B.C. stood for previous. I mean, let's not pretend. We would say before Christ and after death. But they changed that because... What I loved is atheists had to sign their checks by putting a date on it, and that date was founded on Jesus. So there's a little bit of scrutiny when the skeptics came out and said, I shouldn't have to do that. Well, then spend cash. I don't know what to do for you. Okay, so the New Century were written, or the New Testament were all written in the first century. So in that period of time, depending on when you date the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, uh, the latest I've ever seen it is 94. AD. So between 40 and 94, so in a 54-year period of time, 27 books of the New Testament are written. That when they started, they were producing. Now remember, there was no publishing houses. This was handwritten on parchment by a bunch of poor people. So it's pretty phenomenal when you look at it historically. Let's break down the New Testament as an overview and see what we get here. The first, the narrative stories of Jesus. That's your first blank. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We are so spoiled to be able to have guys like Chad and Michael walk on this stage on a Sunday morning and give us a 
28-minute snapshot of a college course. I thought Michael did a great job. What was the one thing he told us to look for when we read the Gospel of Mark? Do you remember what it was? Who is Jesus? And if we, we miss that, we're going to keep talking about that the rest of the, of the uh, series. It's the narrative stories of, of Jesus. So, and then there's the early history of the church. It's not much of a history. We wouldn't use this as a textbook uh, to talk about history of the day. It's really talking about... Now, when I, when I say to you the early history of the church, I'm thinking, okay, this church started, and then this church started, and this church... But it really doesn't do that. There's a big turn from Peter's preaching to Paul's preaching to then it just ends, which is really a bad history. It's like I was born, and then I met Heather, and we got married, and that's a horrible history. Because if you care at all about the two main characters, you're wondering what happened. But it was written by Luke to answer the question of these Greek men, these wealthy patrons who hired this man to go find out this story because somewhere these Greek patrons called Theophilus saw that something was changing and they wanted to say, where did this start? So that's the history of the early church. And then there are Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and Corinthians are letters to the early churches. These are some of the earliest letters written. And they were written to specific churches. And what I mean by specific churches is that they were, you can tell by the nature of the letter, this would be more of a, if you'll pardon a weird term, more of a congregational letter than it was a community letter. There are letters written to a specific group of people who called themselves followers of Christ. And then other letters, the second group of letters, so we have early churches, and then letters to growing churches throughout the world. These are more communal letters. These are pass-around letters. Uh, Every now and then, I'll get a thank you card in the mail, and it'll say, to the staff or to the elders of Christ Church. And sometimes... I'll get letters that tell me to stop talking about cats, and it's written to Pastor Mark. Okay? So the Pastor Mark letters, I weep over them, I apologize to God, say I won't do it again, knowing I will, and I put it in a file to remember I'm an idiot. Then I get letters to the elders and to the staff, and I'll read them, and sometimes, if they're short enough, I'll just type out what the person wrote us, and I'll send it to all the staff and the elders in an email saying, we received a nice card this week. Make sense? When you look at the early churches, it's probably a Pastor Mark letter, Stop with the Cats, and the other letter is to all of us. Here's a message to encourage you. So when you read these letters, remember who the audience is. And I know that's a simple understanding and interpretation, but a lot of us don't do that. We plow through books. It's like, okay, I just read Ephesians. Now the next book's Galatians. Instead of stopping and going, okay, I probably should spend a half a year in Ephesians and not worry about getting to Galatians if at the end of Ephesians and Galatians I don't know anything more than when I started. It's like a good meal. Savor it. Enjoy it. Stop and spend some time in it. Then there's letters of Peter, 1 and 2 Peter. Letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. Of course, we know that John wrote the Gospel of John as well. And then there are other early church authors. James. Now let's take a quiz from about three years ago. Who wrote James? It's okay. I gave you an easy one to start with, right? Like the first question is, write your name. Okay? So James wrote the letter of James, but who was he? Jesus' brother. What kind of brother? He was the son of Joseph and Mary, so he was Jesus' half-brother. And if you read through the stories that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell, James is a punk. James thinks thinks Jesus lost his mind, and James tries to force his big brother to go and proclaim that he's the Messiah a year before the time was right. But what's beautiful is when you see what the resurrection did, Who leads the leaders of the early church? It's not Peter. And that's not being disrespectful to the Catholic faith. But when they say Peter was the first pope, you're going to have to talk to James first. Because when you go to Acts and you see the great division that was happening between the Jews and the Gentiles, who sat at the table and made the decision? James. 
Who did Paul and Peter bring their argument to when they couldn't agree? James. When Paul and Barnabas had their disagreement, who sat and gave them counsel? James. Pretty interesting what the resurrection did to that guy. Because he went from saying Jesus is crazy to saying, no, I was an idiot. So he wrote that book. Now, who wrote Hebrews? No clue. You want to start a good debate, have a debate with Christians over who wrote Hebrews. Oh, there's Priscilla wrote it. It, it's, but what we know is it's not the way Paul wrote. The terminology he used, the style of argument, most people can say, Paul didn't write it, Peter definitely didn't write it. I think I pointed this out last summer when we went through First Peter. Some interesting facts, and I, I need to declare to you this. I don't find these on my own. I'm not that bright. But when you read research and you compare people that are really liberal with people that are pretty conservative, it's fun to decide, find out what they agree on. First Peter was not written by Peter. It was dictated by Peter. Because at the end of it, he, he thanks Silas for his assistance. Because if you read the language, the beautiful, poetic, prophetic language of the fir- first letter of Peter, and you read the second, it's like a college graduate and a high school sophomore. The, the fisherman wrote the second one. Now, he wasn't dumb, but he uses simpler language. His sentences are less complex, smaller quicker to the point. The first letter is very ornate, very well gifted. So when you read this, especially those of you who study Bibles, spend some time reading who the audience was, what the date was. Pull up Wikipedia and find out, okay, at this moment in time in history, what was going on in the world? And process that. It's very, very beneficial. So let's talk about between the Testaments, the 400 silent years. All right, let's take a little pop quiz. Just don't answer yet, and then we'll all yell at three. What's the last book of the Old Testament? Go through your mind real quick. Okay. It's Malachi, right? And then the door shuts, and for 400 years, there's not another word. Uh, My dad used to taunt me with this. When I'd whine about God not answering a prayer, why won't God talk to me? He says, unless you've waited 400 years, you've got nothing to complain about. (laughs) Because God's people did. And at the end of that 400 years, what happened? God started talking again. How did God start talking? Through Jesus. If you read the opening of the Hebrew letter, long ago, God spoke in various means and ways. Prophets, donkeys, the sky. And then he started talking through Jesus. So, what we learn from the Old Testament is everything we need to know to have faith in God is present to us in the Old Testament. So, for 400 years, there's silence. And uh, a lot of cool things took place. Now, we addressed this back in October, but uh, I'm pretty sure that we don't all remember it. So, I want to show you some... Some of you have Bibles that have books in them that others don't. When I said there's 66 books, some of you could have held up your Bible and said, "Huh." uh I've got this weird group of books in between the Old and New Testament. Those are called apocryphal books. I've given you 11 reasons, as stated right here, why we don't hold to those as inspired. Uh, Chad said something back in November-ish. He, he was, it was kind of interesting. I talked to him afterwards. I didn't disagree with him at all. It was just risky for him to say, there's nothing wrong with knowing what they say. Because if nothing else, they're historical. Okay, they're not fiction. They're historical. They give us insight into what was going on in those 400 years. But, reading these, here's some reasons why we don't count them the same way we do the others. Number one, Jesus never accepted them as canonical. That canonical is a fancy word for mean canon, approved, chosen. Okay? Jesus never quoted from these books. Now, you can turn up to me and say, there's a lot of books in the Old Testament that Jesus didn't quote. That's correct. That's correct. But one of the qualifiers is, did Jesus acknowledge those? No New Testament writer ever quoted these books. That's significant too. In the historical sermons of Acts, no reference is ever made to these. The apostles never accepted them as canonical. How would I know that? Because when you take the historians like Josephus and Herodotus, those who wrote about what the apostles were going through, they note that these were not books that they would have studied or read. Uh, Some apocryphal books, number six, even disclaim inspiration and canonicity. Seven, the contents of apocryphal are generally inferior in historical accuracy and contrary to moral teachings. 
What's interesting is if you read First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, they will tell you that this king followed that king. And if you've read it, it's kind of cyclical. There was a real good king who returned the people back to God, and his kid came along, and he was a punk. And that kid's mom was named so-and-so. These details that are unique, that if you go back into world history, you'll find that, yeah, that was the mother of the king who served in that capacity. The, what we call the historicity is undeniable. Okay. So, eight, early writers like Melito, Origen, Tertullian, all excluded these. And it just keeps going. Eleven reasons why we don't hold on to these. But what took place in that period of 400 years? Okay there were some kingdoms that were established. Daniel 2.44, written right there for you. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Daniel. Daniel was one of four amazingly bright, good-looking, well-educated young men. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you've ever been in Sunday school, those four have showed up sometime. Every year, you'll hear the story of these four. There's a reason. Israel had disobeyed God, and they had been sent to their room. Their room was in Babylon. And they were punished. But God's amazing. God said, I'm going to send you away for 70 years, and at the end of the 70 years, you will come back. And you will regain the property that you've lost, and you will regain the temple and in a series of events, everything God promised. I was just reading through Ezekiel, not by choice, I'll be honest with you. I don't want you to think I sit around, you know, with angels fluttering, going, tonight I want to read Ezekiel. I'm reading Ezekiel because I want to read through the Bible in a year, and that's the road I'm on. And it's confusing. But about two weeks ago, I think it's in chapter 24, when I was processing that particular passage, God said to Egypt, and we know what a big deal Egypt is in the Old Testament. He said, I'm going to strip from, and I'm going to paraphrase this, I'm going to strip from Egypt its power, and it will never again be a world power. I ask you a question. Was Egypt ever the world power it was? Never. To this day, politically, does Egypt have clout? Absolutely not. God knows what he's talking about. So when you read the Old Testament, you can see what God's doing here. But what's uh, prophesied in the book of Daniel, is that there will be four great kingdoms that will be established. Let me tell you about them. First one uh, is Babylon. Babylon's the granddaddy, or if you're really looking for a metaphor, the witch. Did you notice when you read Revelation, what is the culture, the dark, filthy, sinful culture called? The whore of Babylon. That came in took both Judah and Israel captive, knocked on their door and said, surrender or die. One of the kings surrendered willingly, in fact, was so foolish that he took the the emissaries from Babylon and showed them inside the temple. Hey, here's where we keep our gold, buddy. (laughs) It says immediately, they took him into captivity. They took all of his sons. They slaughtered all of his sons in front of him and then they poked out his eyes so the last sight he would ever see in his lifetime was the death of his kids. Yay, Babylon. The other king heard about it and went, what am I supposed to do? He went to the prophet and amazing, the prophet said, surrender. It's kind of interesting because we think fight, stand up for what's right and God said, no, no, you can't stop this. That king surrendered because he believed the prophecy And the Bible says that for the rest of his life, he was cared for by the Babylonians. He lived in their palace. His family was provided for because this was God's will, not man's will. Babylon, it was an amazing, uh, hard culture. Uh, You'll you'll notice in several times in the Bible, whenever you read the phrase, the land of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians. Now, how many of you, I'm not good with geography, so I'm not making fun of anyone. How many of you could find the nation of Babylon on a map. Just a couple of us. Well, if you just look where Jerusalem was and you go 300 miles to the east, Babylon was right there. So the people were taken from their land, taken 300 miles away, and they were kept in captivity. And then, like God promised, uh, or as my, my grandfather used to say, they got too big for their britches, which is a ridiculous statement, but it's in my vernacular. 
they got cocky and God said, I'm going to punish you, which is funny about God. God has them do it and then punishes them for doing it. That's something my big brother would do to me. Talk me into doing something not knowing that mom and dad said not to. And then the minute mom and dad walked in, Steve would go, Mark did it. Yay, that's really great. Thank you. Well, Babylon paid a deep price. And notice that Babylon never was the world power it was at that moment. Then the next group came in called the Medes, M-E-D-E-S. Which I didn't know this. They come from the land of Media. (laughs) Today is funny. 50 years ago, wouldn't have been at all. The Medes have the shortest reign. Their power is very, very brief. And... um, Then came the Persians. Okay? Persia in the Bible is now what? Iran. Okay? And they've been a world player for a long, long time, but it's always in this role, which is kind of fascinating. Read in Ezekiel and what he says about the Persians, and you shouldn't be surprised that Iran is a little brother that won't leave you alone. He's always causing problems. And so they came in, and... uh, They had a lot of military uh, prominence. They absorbed the Median Empire, which is an interesting term. Instead of them coming in and conquering the Medes, they just absorbed them in. And the reason I keep pointing this out is, one of the things we need to do when we read this period of time between and what Daniel prophesied is that the greatest challenge for the church today is not to be co-opted into society. It's to do what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. It's to continue to be a light in dark places rather than to be co-opted in and become like everything else so there's no distinction. And then from the Persians, uh, there was a couple of kings, and you might write these names down uh, for those of you that know your Old Testament history, Cyrus and Darius. Both of these guys are significant because it's the Persians who really do God's work in an amazing way and they don't know about it. It's Darius who allows them to go back and start to rebuild the walls of the city, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So he's establishing that they're saying, hey, go back, because what Darius did was Darius began the process of them returning, just like God said they would. So God could even use an evil king who doesn't worship him to accomplish his purposes. And then come the Greeks. And the name, the, the identification of Greece is found in Daniel 8 and Zechariah 9 and Joel. But there's really a lot of silence on who the Greeks were. We know by the names of Alexander the Great, the conquering the world and the church uh, being used by that. So you have all of this information I'm providing for you and then you come down to this period of time where there's always this jockeying of position who's going to own the Holy Land who's going to take God's people, and what's going to happen to them. And then some things happen that are pretty amazing when you read here. It was during, and I just would like to read it because I tried to to make it as clear as possible. It was during the Greek rule of Palestine in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, a king of fierce countenance, that an effort was made to destroy the religion of Jehovah. They had returned back, they had rebuilt the walls, they had rebuilt the temple. It took them hundreds of years to do it. He attacked the temple, and he desecrated the altar by sacrificing a sow. Now, we look at that, and I even put in there to be humorous, a Jewish luau. There could be nothing worse for a Jew than to have the holy altar desecrated by a pig's blood being splattered all over it. And what Epiphanes decided he would do is he was going to come in with military force, and he was going to belittle and beleaguer the Hebrew people to such a degree that they would lose their spines and give up. But what the rulers of the world never understood is, you play with God's things and his people will stand up. You play with my things and I'm all alone. Make sense? When they slaughtered the pig on the altar, it was a response by a group of brothers with the last name Maccabees. And... They decided this, we've had enough, and they caused an insurrection that ended the Greek control. But you then know what happens, right? When the Greeks left, who came in and took over? The Romans. And now we're at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Babylonians, to the Medes, to the Persians, to the Greeks, to the Romans. 
And when you read Matthew and Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, you'll read about the great Messiah, the Son of God. Did you know that that was a term applied to Jesus that was not new? That Caesar, Caesar Augustus, was called the Messiah, the Son of God. He was considered deity by the Romans. So now when you have all of this world history, that's why when students say to me, I don't care about the history, what's on the test? I'm like, you're missing it. This story is not like all of a sudden God disappeared, the world went on and Jesus came. I've got to fix everything. God had been working even in captivity to align everything. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says these words. In the perfect time, Jesus came. Perfect time. Let's ponder that. Don't you think the perfect time would be now with all the mass media, with all the communication? If Jesus showed up now, couldn't we get that word out to everybody in the matter of hours? I think we could. Clearly we could. Shoot, CNN's on the beach before our soldiers land. So we could get the word out. But God said, in the perfect time Jesus came. As we enter the New Testament, what does that mean? So let me quiz you. What was in place when Jesus showed up that allowed that moment to be the best moment to incubate the Son of God on earth? What do you know about world history? Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome. In other words, if, if someone was under Roman control and you messed with them, you messed with Big Brother. And at that time, Rome was at epic strength, starting to weaken, but it was strong. What else? What was Rome famous for giving the world? Roads. Highways that were protected by the government. Every road leads to Rome. So if you're going to start a church and you want it to go through all the world and there are shipping lanes that are protected from pirates and all these evil forces and you have political protection, isn't it funny that God used Rome and they didn't know they were being used? God said, I'm going to use this evil nation to get my job done. They're going to do my work for me. They're going to provide roads and safety on the roads and shipping. And I'm going to put this guy named Paul under Roman captivity and they're going to take him to the town that I want him to plant a church in. And the, and the dispersion, the persecution in the book of Acts, when the Christians started being persecuted, it said they were dispersed throughout the world. On whose roads? Under whose protection? God, I love God. He had it all figured out. Now, would we have done it that way? Absolutely not. But he did. Oh, and by the way, when Herod came to have Jesus killed, where did Joseph take him? If God wants to hide his holy people, he hides them in Egypt. Because they went to Egypt, and we believe that he was two and a half, three years of age when he returned. Because it was during that period of time that Herod died. So if we have Jesus born at X period of time in history, we also have Herod dying at X period of time in history. That's why we don't believe Jesus was born in year zero. Because if, if you believe the Bible's historically accurate, the calendar system was messed up. Okay. So let's talk about some key players and then we'll proceed a little bit. We might even introduce lesson two for those of you that don't come back. Okay. Pharisees, first group. Terms in the New Testament that's important for us to grasp onto. They were a small but powerful religious sect who held to the law literally. They espoused belief in the traditions of the elders, angels, spirits, and the resurrection of the dead. If I applied a political group to them, like if I said one's Republican or one Democrat, I'm not apt to do that because uh, this is a really political region of the world. And for some of you, if I said the Pharisees were the Democrats, you'd go, well, then they were good, and I don't want you to go there. If I said they're Republican, oh, they're, they're the good. No, I don't want you to go there. What you understand is these were two political parties. Here's what I want you to be able to do. When you read the gospel and you hear the Pharisees, I want you to be able to know that they weren't the Sadducees and they weren't the scribes. It's not like saying the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees were there. No, that's three distinct groups. That's your libertarians, your Democrats, and your Republicans. And the only thing they've ever agreed on in their entire life is they don't like Jesus or his followers because their power's at risk. So the Pharisees was a group that probably believed more of what Jesus taught than the other group, the Sadducees. Hang on a second. I had a blank. 
So, now, we know the Sadducees didn't believe in what things? Pardon? Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And they didn't believe in spiritual creatures or beings. When I was a little kid in Sunday school, this was easy to remember. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad you see. When you're six, that's funny and it lasts forever. Okay? Pharisees believed in a lot of what Jesus taught. So here's what we need to take from this. The primary problem the Pharisees had was that Jesus was on their turf. The Sadducees' problem was Jesus was preaching a lie. That's significant when you read who he's talking to and what he's saying. Because sometimes he's talking to the Sadducees, sometimes he's talking to the Pharisees, and then there's that one beautifully funny moment when the Sadducees and the Pharisees come to Jesus, and what are they arguing about? The Sadducees are arguing with the Pharisees that if Mark was married to Heather, and then Heather passed, and then he married Julie, and then she passed, and then he married Rhonda, and she passed, and then he married Betty, and she passed, when he gets to heaven, <laughs> who's he married to? <laughs> and Jesus looks at him and goes, you don't understand the law. And the Pharisees are like, burned. And then he goes after the Pharisees. Because what they'd done is they'd take the best parts of the scripture and they decided this one's ours. And I know churches don't do that, do we? We don't take passages of scripture and put them on bumper stickers and walk around saying the only translation of the Bible is X. Or if I had one verse in all the Bible, it drives me crazy when I hear preachers say that. If I had one verse in all the scripture, it would be blah. Don't do that because God didn't ask you to take one verse. He wants us to take the God of the story Every bit of him. Because if you leave any part out, you didn't take him. That's why Michael said, it's about Jesus. Not the Jesus we think he is, but the Jesus he reveals himself to be. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees are key players. Then there's a group called the Herodians. They will have some cameo appearances in your Bible. And they were in support of, take the first five letters, Herod. They were nothing but his Gestapo. Religious people who, as long as he was in office, they were taken care of. They had all the perks, all the benefits. They had everything they wanted. Then there's the zealots. Zealots were the radicals, the insurrectionists. Maybe, if you don't extend it too far, the word terrorist might be a safe word for them. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there was one of Jesus' disciples named Simon the Zealot. Jesus had a redneck on his crew. He did. This is the first guy who's like, kill him. No, slow down. <laughs> Just relax. I love them, remember? Yeah, yeah, I keep forgetting. So he, you know, he wanted to blow everything up and chase people around with knives. Then there are the scribes. The scribes were the copyists and the interpreters of the law. It's really important for us to weigh this, though. The scribes had power in that they could mess with the scriptures, right? There's a book by an author named Thomas Cahill, and I have an affection for this title because of my heritage. But he wrote a book called How the Irish Saved Civilization. If you're interested at all in what happened when Rome was destroyed, how did we get the sacred text out of there? It was my people. The Irish skipped in like we do, stole everything, and ran out. But Cahill wrote this book called How the Irish Saved Civilization. And when I read it, it fascinated me because he tells the story of how the Irish monks went in and got the sacred scrolls and kept them in Scotland, Ireland, and in England for centuries. If they hadn't done that, we wouldn't have the veracity of our interpretations in our text today. Pretty, pretty sweet how it all came about. But the scribes were the ones who wrote down and made sure. When Jesus said that there won't be a jot or a tittle of the law, he was addressing scribes, making sure that every comma was perfect, that everything was, was just translated. They would double and triple check. They spent their entire lives protecting that. So the scribes came to Jesus on a few occasions when you read it, and they're trying to correct him, like he got it wrong. Those are great moments in sports. 
when you read those, Jesus isn't very gentle with them because he's like, really? I wrote it. Made a big claim. The synagogue. Help me. What's the difference between the synagogue and the temple? In, in, in English, well, church is a church is a church. Nope, not in the... Where was the temple located? Jerusalem. How many of them were there? Where was the synagogue located? In most every town. How many of them there were? Depends how many Jews were around. Synagogue was a local place of worship. Temple was the one place of worship. Does that make a difference then when Jesus said, you see the temple in three days, it's going to be torn, I'm going to rebuild it. Three days, I'm going to rebuild that thing. I'm going to tear it down, I'm going to start it over. And they're like, we've been at this 100 years and it's not even finished. How, how ridiculous. The temple was one. The synagogues were many. So you'll notice that Jesus went into the local synagogue, place of worship for the Jews, and he taught. When he went into the temple, how many times do we know he went into the temple? Twice. What did he do both times he went into the temple? Turned it upside down. So don't confuse them as the same place. Knowing the characters, the significance of what they're doing, helps breed context into all of this. And then there was a Sanhedrin. Um, I don't have this down here, but I've always just described it this way because it makes sense to me. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of every Jew who lived in the world. Anything that would be contested, no matter where you lived in the world, a Jew could appeal to the Sanhedrin. Who were the ones that judged Jesus on the night he was betrayed? The Sanhedrin. Paul is believed to have been a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, I'm suggesting this. Not everyone agrees with me, and smarter people than me don't agree with me, so I may be wrong on this. But I tend to believe that Paul is in the shadow of every conflict in the Gospels. Because when you look at the suddenness for Paul's fame and power as a member of the Sanhedrin and what he was in the book of Acts, he had to have been engaged at some part in these proceedings. I also believe this for this simple reason. When he's walking on the road to Damascus and that big rotisserie light in the sky hits him and he falls on his knees, he didn't have to ask who it was, did he? I think he was there. Now, maybe he wasn't. It doesn't, he doesn't have to be. But that Sanhedrin had power. They were the Supreme Court. And when they ruled that Jesus blasphemed, the only thing that stopped them from killing him was they could not kill anybody under Roman control until the Romans signed off on it which explains the whole week of passion, why Jesus got dragged from Annas to Caiaphas, from Caiaphas to Pilate, back to Caiaphas, back to Pilate. Finally, Pilate's like, I'm out. All of that drama happens because the Sanhedrin, the 70 ruling elders of every Hebrew who lived, made a decision Jesus was too big of a risk to keep around. You'll even notice on two occasions in the Gospels, someone from the Sanhedrin stood up and said, should we be doing this? but they got voted out, or voted down, I'm sorry. So that is this book. That's all the history leading up to when we launch next week into the Gospels. And we're going to summarize Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm going to show you the, the big passages in each one of them. Since we're in Mark, we just felt like this was a 100-level approach to helping people have an idea when you start reading the story where you're at in the storyline and what difference it makes. Any questions, reactions? Yes, ma'am. I have a question. If we happen to miss one of the blanks that you gave us, will you put your outline with answers online so we can get those? Yeah. I don't know how we can put them online on our webpage necessarily, but you can sure email me and I will send you my notes in a heartbeat. Okay. Well, I know you all want to get to Walmart and buy bread, so we, we can... <laughs> Uh, I'm allowed to finish early on Wednesday nights, but never on Sunday morning. So uh, we'll take this as a treat. Okay. Next week, we'll come in. Chapter 2, you have your notes so you can be... Yes, ma'am. Okay, all right. <laughs> I will slow down. Next week, I'm hoping to be able to have the notes up on the screen to be able to fly those. So while I'm yapping about nonsense, you can see them in advance. Or if you want, I just send you my notes and we all stay home. You guys figure that out. Okay? All right, let me pray and appreciate your attention tonight. God, thank you for your word. I pray that you create a love in our lives for it. 
God, sometimes it's hard, and sometimes I read it, and I know my, my eyes ran across it, and my mouth said the words, but at the end of the day, I don't know that I know anymore. But I know when I listen to the story, and I see what you've done from beginning to end, there's no question who you are. So help us this week to read and to process and not to be in a hurry, but to just enjoy your message to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.